Tonight, we are beginning a series of sermons on the parables of Jesus Christ. We're obviously not going to get to all of the many parables that are included among uh, the four Gospels, but uh, we will uh, choose a selection of them uh, to focus on. This evening, we're going to be looking at the parable of the barren fig tree. So, if you would turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 13. We're going to focus our attention on verses 6 through 9, but I'm going to begin reading at verse 1 just to give us a little bit of context. As you turn there, I want to say just a few brief things about the parables. Well, we're going to see together that the parables are really uh, picture lessons that our Lord Jesus uses to, uh, to instruct us about the character of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And when we talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking about several things. We're talking about the sovereign rule or reign of God over all things, both great and small. But we're also talking about the special way that, uh, that God exercises or demonstrates His sovereignty, and that is by creating uh, the church, or the body of believers, those who have been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, who, who claim Christ as their Lord and Savior. So, the parables will teach us something about the kingdom of heaven in very practical ways. But the parables also teach us how we in our own lives and in our speech and in our conduct are to reflect the virtues of the kingdom of heaven, how we are to prepare ourselves for the return of Jesus Christ, a return that could come at any moment. So tonight we focus on the barren fig tree and the call for us as believers to bear righteous fruit in our lives. I'll begin reading here at verse 1. This is God's holy word. There were some present at that very time who told him, that is Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then... If it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. Here we end the reading of God's holy word this evening. Well, as I'm sure most, if not all of you know, my dear wife is a kindergarten teacher, and I've gotten into the habit each day when she returns home from teaching of asking her, how are the kids today? How are the kids today? 
And most of the time, I have to say, she comes home with a positive report. The children were well-behaved, and uh, she had wonderful, happy stories to tell, which I enjoy hearing once in a while. A few of the kids in the class who tend to act up uh, are reported on by Mrs. Squeers. And I listen with a little bit of smile on my face as she uh, talks about her children when they misbehave, and usually their misbehavior involves some form of shifting the blame off of themselves to another student. Um, so-and-so might have had their, their hair pulled, and when they are called to account by Mrs. Squeers, they say, well, yes, I, I did this, but this person did something far worse. Uh, it was their fault, and, and they're more to blame than I am. See, kids are fairly good at shifting the blame, and those of you who are parents or grandparents, I don't need to tell you that. But adults are fairly good at shifting the blame as well. And here at the beginning of chapter 13 in Luke's gospel, Dr. Luke gives us record of a few more blame shifters. At this place in the narrative, Jesus has begun His later Judean ministry, and He is preaching about God's judgment, about the coming of the Son of Man, and He has been preaching and warning people to repent of their sins and to believe the gospel. And the people to whom He is speaking are becoming rather uncomfortable with this message of judgment and repentance, and so they try to shift the attention. They try to shift the blame off of themselves onto others. You notice here in the first verse, they, they raise an example to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, what about those Jewish pilgrims from Galilee whom Pontius Pilate executed while they were offering their sacrifices? What about them? Let's talk about them. Certainly, they must have done something terrible to deserve such a horrible death. But you notice that Jesus knows exactly what they are thinking. He's not fooled even for a moment. He knows their thoughts so well that He even raises a similar example to prove that He knows what they're thinking. In verse 5, 4 and 5, He says, well, what about those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse sinners? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the other residents of Jerusalem? And Jesus says, not at all. That's not the point. No, he says, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The point of Jesus' teaching here is to warn everyone without exception about the need to repent, to be ready for the end of all things. The two stories here at the beginning of Luke 13 have one thing in common. These people perished without warning. They didn't see it coming. And so Jesus says to the crowd, the real question that should trouble you, the real question that should concern you is this, have I repented? Am I bearing the fruit of righteousness that is proper for a child of God, for someone who belongs to the kingdom of God? And so he warns them all alike, if you do not repent, if you do not believe, if you do not obey, you, very much like the rest, will be caught off guard 
and perish. Well, it's after saying these things in this context to reinforce the need for genuine repentance and righteous fruit that Jesus then tells this parable of the barren fig tree. And He tells it to illustrate a very important point for us to think about tonight, and that is this. The time is running short. Time is running short. Now, right now, is the time to live fruitful lives. God's gracious patience, His temporary patience, ought to lead us to repentance and good works before His final judgment comes. The first thing we want to notice tonight is the fruitful vineyard of Jesus' parable. What we're going to discover together in the coming months is that Jesus' parables are filled with ordinary pictures or images or analogies from everyday life. And this parable is no exception. The fig tree, the main image here in this parable, is a very common image throughout the Old and New Testaments, found some 60 times in God's Word. And of special importance here is the location of this fig tree in Jesus' parable. It's been carefully planted within the vineyard of the owner. And the vineyard would have been a very ideal place for this fig tree to grow and to flourish and to bear fruit. There in the vineyard, uh, the, the soil would have been carefully selected, and it would have been fertilized. The tree would have been watered. It would have been pruned with diligent attention to give it the most opportunity to grow and to bear fruit. It was safe in the vineyard. Vineyard walls would have been high walls to protect it uh, from those who would destroy the trees. In other words, the tree in Jesus' parable is given every opportunity to grow and to flourish, to do what it's supposed to do as a tree. And that's why, because of this favorable environment in which the tree finds itself, the owner comes to the tree at the appropriate season, and he expects to find fruit. He expects to find fruit. Well, this idea certainly would have resonated with the Jews of Jesus' day, because God had often uh, compared His covenant people to a fig tree. In fact, in Isaiah 5, verse 7, God calls Israel, He calls Judah, his fig tree, or his vineyard, rather. Sometimes he would use the fig tree to describe uh, Israel's prosperity, its blessing when the people were living faithfully before the face of God. Picture is of everyone living in peace and security and prosperity under their own vine and fig tree. And when we think about the specific ways that God blessed His people, uh, we see the wonderful covenant blessings that God gave to His people on regular occasion. God planted Israel, you might say, in the promised land, a land that was bountiful, flowing with milk and honey. Uh, God made His people privileged among all the nations of the earth. He drove out her enemies and made her life secure and bountiful. And so, because of this gracious covenant which He placed His people, He called Israel uh, to keep His commandments. But we see something similar when we think about our life in Christ's church. Jesus compares us to a fig tree planted in His vineyard, planted in this fruitful covenant environment. 
in which we as Christians have every opportunity to grow and to flourish and to bear fruit, to grow spiritually mature. It's helpful for us to think about some of the advantages that we enjoy as members of God's covenant vineyard. We enjoy the blessing of coming regularly under the preaching of the Word. As God reveals Himself to us, as He nourishes our souls with the life-giving Word of the gospel. We can think of the sacraments of of the Lord's Supper and baptism, which we've had the opportunity to, to observe and celebrate these last few months, where God promises once again that He is God to us and to our children. We think of the Christian fellowship that we enjoy here on the church campus every week as well as in one another's homes as we come to spend time with one another, a symbol, a sign of the Holy Spirit's work in our community. We think of the instruction and the prayer and the spiritual guidance that's provided at home, at church, at school. All of these things are the ways that God provides for us spiritually, and He expects results in our lives. He looks for the development of godliness in our lives. He he looks for the fruit of the Spirit uh, popping up all over our lives. He looks to our lives for genuine sorrow, for sin and a desire to glorify Him with our minds and with our bodies. God expects the fruit of righteousness in our lives as a kind of a litmus test of our faith. And that's why Jesus says in Matthew 7, verse 20, you will know, you will recognize a good, healthy tree by its fruit. But when the owner of the vineyard comes to his fig tree at the appropriate time of the year for figs, he's terribly disappointed. This tree, despite its favorable environment, has proven to be utterly unproductive, totally fruitless. He comes to his tree at the appropriate season when figs are expected and anticipated, but he finds nothing, just leaves. And the barrenness of this tree is totally inexcusable totally contrary to its purpose, contrary to its upbringing, and the owner is upset. This tree is good for nothing. It's not even deserving of the soil that it takes up in the vineyard. It's worthy only to be chopped down and turned into firewood. Well, again, Jesus' listeners, when He first told this parable, would have again heard echoes of Isaiah chapter 5, because there, God rebuked His people, Israel, for failing to accept the duties that were hers as as a member of the covenant of God. As we have been learning on Sunday evenings through the Elijah study, uh, Israel was often spiritually barren despite all that God had done for her. And ultimately, because of her hardness of heart, God's vineyard was trampled. It was laid waste. And and Jesus says in Matthew 21, the kingdom of God was taken away from her and given to people producing its fruits. And so this passage is a warning for Jesus' original audience. It's also an important warning for us that God judges trees that fail to bear the expected and necessary fruit. 
You see, we must understand that true repentance, genuine conversion in our lives, represents a change of life through faith that necessarily results in bearing new fruit that is pleasing to our Heavenly Father. There is no new life without new fruit in our lives. And so this parable is a a strong warning for those of us who give no evidence of the faith that we profess. Jesus tells us that our growth as believers is of vital importance. In fact, He says, without that growth, without that fruit, we cannot be saved. Now, I want to be very clear about what God's Word is saying here. In 2 Peter chapter 1, we are told that bearing fruit, Christian good works, makes our calling and election sure. But sure to whom? Not sure to God, because of course He is the the author of our election and our salvation. He is the one who draws people to Himself. He is the one who accomplishes our salvation. Bearing fruit doesn't make our calling and election sure to God, but bearing Christian fruit does make our calling and election sure to us and to those around us. Visible growth in Christ encourages us. It confirms to us that we are truly joined to Jesus by faith, that His life is working through our own lives. Good works, Christian fruit, attest our election. And so we need to see this parable as a sober warning calling us to be attentive, thoughtful of the fruit that we are bearing. Because those who bear no fruit over time prove that they are in fact not good trees. And God will remove them from His vineyard. We need to ask some very critical questions of ourselves and of our lives. If the Lord finds no fruit, no spiritual fruit in our lives, is He not justified to cut us down? He looks for actual fruit, not counterfeit. And so we need to examine our lives. We need to examine ourselves as God's Word calls us to do and ask, do I bear real, genuine, visible fruit? Are the fruits of repentance and love and charity and godliness present in my life? We need to answer these questions lest we are faulty trees. Well, thankfully, Jesus' parable doesn't end there. His parable doesn't end on this tragic note because in a gracious way, in a faithful way, the gardener, the vine dresser, steps in. He intercedes on behalf of this fruitless tree, and he asks the owner of the vineyard for another year, the minimum time needed for this tree to bear fruit. And in the meantime, he makes a promise. He is going to take special care of this tree. He's going to make this tree his special project. 
He's going to cultivate it. He's going to fertilize it. He is going to work on this tree to the best of His ability to make it fruitful, to make it productive. The vine dresser is patient. He's patient with this barren tree even though it has no reason to be barren and fruitless. He's going to do all that He can to save it from ultimate destruction. And certainly, with this analogy, we are reminded of the beautiful reality that our God is gracious in His mercy, but He is also full of integrity according to His justice. And it's at the cross of Jesus Christ that we see these two things, God's mercy and His justice, come together perfectly. They came together at the cross of Jesus, resulting in the full measure of God's wrath being poured out against our sin onto His Son. And yet at that same time, God demonstrated the depths of His love and His mercy for lost sinners such as us. He was willing, He was eager to sacrifice His only begotten Son to pay the price for our own redemption to reconcile guilty sinners to Himself that they would not face His everlasting condemnation. It's on account of Christ's awesome work that, that God is faithful, He's gracious, He's patient with us. In His mercy, He's given us a time, a period of grace for us to repent and to believe and to bear fruit. But in the face of God's grace, we must not be presumptive. We, may not, we must not presume upon God's grace. We must not take His patience for granted. Remember what Jesus said earlier in His conversation with the crowd. He said to them, now is the hour of grace. Now is the time for you to repent and to dedicate yourself to God. Don't delay. The Apostle Paul, writing in Romans 2, said something similar. He said that the patience and the kindness of God are not to lead us to apathy. They're to lead us to repentance. But unfortunately, God's kindness, His patience, sometimes leads us to believe that God is just a cosmic wimp. He's just an indulgent God, a kindly, harmless grandfather who would never actually call anyone to account for their sins. That's how the world views God. That's how the world views the threat of judgment as, as just an idle threat. And we're told that we should just live life to the fullest. Live the way we want to live. Experience everything on your bucket list. And then maybe when you're old and gray after living a life of godlessness, after sowing your wild oats, then perhaps you will have time and opportunity to repent and devote yourself to God. Friends, do not believe such a foolish lie. Young people, do not believe such a foolish lie. Because while God is patient, and while God is certainly merciful, He is also just. He is righteous. 
And when we treat him like an indulgent wimp who has no spine to judge unrighteousness, we mock him and we increase our sin. God will not overlook the sin of the unrepentant. And so Jesus says right now, in this hour of grace, before it is too late, devote your life obediently to Him. Do not presume upon His grace, but treat each day as a fresh day for repentance, a new day for discipleship, for living out the fruits of repentance and faith. Brothers and sisters, we need to take note of this warning and in faith claim the gracious covenant promises and blessings of our God. We are called to seek intimate fellowship with Jesus Christ, to be nourished daily by His Holy Spirit as we dive into the Scriptures to discern His will for our lives as He works through the powerful preaching of the Word of God Sunday after Sunday. Brothers and sisters, remain connected to Jesus Christ because He is your source of life and liberty. In John 15, Jesus shows us that. He shows us that apart from being connected to Him and remaining connected to Him, apart from that, we cannot bear Christian fruit. It's impossible. It's only by our union with Him by faith that we have the power, that we have the strength to bear new fruit as Christians. Jesus says there in John 15, I'm the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, there's a promise here, he will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. This is to my Father's glory, Jesus says, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves, revealing yourselves for all to see that you are my disciples. Saints of God, our Lord's return is imminent. He could come back at any time, but then it will be too late to repent. It will be too late to bear fruit. The day of accounting will have already come. And so God's Word, our Lord Jesus, asks you tonight, are you ready? Are you ready? Is there enough oil in your lamps to withstand the night of this present evil age until the bridegroom returns? Are you a fruitful tree, showing forth the, the fruit of righteousness in faith by the power of the Holy Spirit? Or are you barren? Are you dried up, fruitless, rotten, stinking? Do not delay. Now is the hour of grace. Be connected to the vine. Bear much fruit. And in faith and in reliance on God, show yourself right now before a watching world to be His disciple. And claim His promise 
that after beginning His good work in you by the Holy Spirit, He will bring it to completion at the day of Christ when you will be approved, filled with the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Amen. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are grateful, though not as grateful as we should be, for this wonderful, blessed covenant environment in which You have placed us. Many of us have enjoyed this fruitful vineyard of the church since our birth. Many of us know nothing else. But Lord, may we not presume upon Your grace. May we not presume upon Your patience, but receive this warning from Scripture with seriousness and with thoughtfulness. For You require that there be new Christian fruit in our lives for all to see. And Lord, we know that it is impossible for us to bear good fruit unless we are connected to our life source, Jesus Christ, the vine. So, Lord, we pray that we would be self-reflective, that we would be thoughtful about the requirements that You have for us as You have so plainly stated them in Your Word, that we would become wise and knowledgeable with regard to the Scriptures, that we would think carefully about how we can live lives that are pleasing to You, that those good works, though not a part of our redemption, certainly a result of our new life and salvation in Jesus Christ, a necessary confirmation that we are connected to Jesus Christ. Lord, help us in this endeavor. Thank You for the power and the strength of Your Holy Spirit to guide us and to strengthen us for this. We pray that in all things You would receive the glory through the fruit that is born in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.